beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we come to the end of the book of Numbers. Our text seems like a strange ending to a book. It's important to remember that Numbers is part of the five books of Moses. The story is not complete until the end of Deuteronomy. Most of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons in which Moses exhorts God's people about how they are to live when they inherit the promised land. The book of Numbers ends with some rules about Israel's inheritance in the promised land. Today we would define an inheritance as the assets that an individual passes on to their loved ones when he or she dies. An inheritance will often include cash, investments like stocks or bonds, assets like jewelry or cars, real estate, perhaps even a business. Most commonly, the situation is one where parents die and they leave their estate to their children. Inheritances can be a tricky business. If there's been trouble in the family, if siblings don't get along, or if the parents are perceived to show favoritism, fights can easily break out about inheritances. There's lots of fiction written and movies made about inheritances gone wrong. When people are lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, ungrateful, angry, or greedy, there's lots of potential for things to go wrong. This morning we will investigate the situation of the daughters of Zlofahad and how their previously established right to inherit property might have unintended consequences. We'll see how the leaders from their tribe asked for a judgment to prevent a lot of fighting later on. Yet our text does more than that. It focuses our attention on the Israelites' eager expectation that they would inherit the land. It forces us to examine what our inheritance is and to think through our priorities in life so that we may share in our godly heritage. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. Numbers ends with the Lord giving his people further instructions about how to inherit the promised land. The Lord teaches his people how not to compromise their inheritance and how to take possession of it. Back in Numbers 27, we were introduced to Zelophehad's daughters. They were spirited young women of faith who were looking forward to inheriting the land of Canaan along with the rest of the Israelites. Yet their father had died and they had no brothers. According to the Lord's decree, the land was to be apportioned to the Israelite tribes and families. Numbers 26.53 says that it was to be divided for inheritance according to the number of names mentioned in the second census. The problem for Zelophehad's daughters was that the second census counted the people according to the names of the men, 20 years old and upward, all those who were able to go to war. Since only the men were counted in the census, Zelophehad's daughters would be left without an inheritance. And so they asked, why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give us 
a possession among our father's brothers. Their basic point is that their dad and his family have a rightful place in the land. These women were brave enough to appear before the whole congregation to present their case before Moses and Eliezer the priest at the tent of meeting. Moses did not decide on this case on his own. He sought the Lord's guidance. The Lord judged that the daughters of Zlophehad were right. He granted them their share of the inheritance. He made a general rule that if a man dies and has no son, you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. In our text, we see the leaders of the tribe of Manasseh approach Moses about a problem that would likely arise as a result of this legislation. If Zlophad's daughters married outside the tribe, their father's inheritance would pass through their husbands to another tribe. Then part of Manasseh's inheritance would pass into the possession of other tribes. Over time, as various daughters inherited land because they had no brothers and married outside the tribe, Israel would no longer be broken up into tribal units. Instead, Israel would become a patchwork where various tribes own property among the inheritance first given to another tribe. It is noteworthy that the leaders of Manasseh approached Moses to seek advice. This generation was different from the first generation that came out of Egypt. The first generation had continually grumbled and complained against Moses and against the Lord. But by now, most of them had died. The second generation was different. Since the second census, recorded in Numbers 26, the Israelites have lived by faith. Once again, our text makes clear that Moses sought God's guidance. The Lord agreed with the concern of the leaders from the tribe of Manasseh. Through Moses, the Lord issued this command concerning the daughters of Zlophehad. Let them marry whom they think best. Only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. For every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. Thus, daughters who received an inheritance were required to marry within their tribe and clan. No inheritance was to pass from tribe to tribe. Each tribe was to retain the land assigned to it by God. We might think that this could be a huge issue for Zelophehad's daughters. Yet our text makes clear that they were allowed to marry whoever they wished, with only one restriction. He had to be from their tribal clan. In Israel, it was very common to marry within your own tribe. The Lord gave this law so that there would be no conflict over the inheritance of land. Each tribe was to retain its own territory. Striking to see how Zelophehad's daughters responded to the Lord's command. They obeyed it. They did as the Lord commanded Moses. They were married to sons of their father's brothers. 
These women acted in faith and obedience. They were grateful. They were allowed to share in the inheritance that the Lord had promised to his people. They understood the need for each tribe to retain its own inheritance. And so they submitted themselves to the Lord's instruction. They obeyed because they did not want to compromise their inheritance. What is remarkable about our text, beloved, is that the Israelites were still camped on the plains of Moab, on the far side of the Jordan. There were two obstacles preventing their entry into the land. There was the Jordan River. And beyond that was the city of Jericho. It was a fortified city with walls and gates and bars. The people who lived there were well equipped to defend themselves from attack. The point is that all this discussion about inheriting the land was theoretical. Israel still needed to conquer Canaan. The Canaanite nations were large and strong. Here we see the faith of the second generation revealed. Forty years earlier, the Lord had led their fathers to this same point. When the spies came back with a report about the strength of the Canaanite nations and how some of them were giants, Israel cowered in fear. They disobeyed the Lord's command to go and take possession of the land. Instead, leaders among the people proposed to take them back to Egypt. Their actions had led to a 40-year wilderness sojourn. The second generation has learned from the folly and the faithlessness of the first generation. They believed that the Lord would give them the land. That's why the daughters of Zlophehad came to Moses to ask for a share of the inheritance. That's why the leaders of Manasseh came to Moses to discuss the potential for tribal land to be lost. They had set their eyes on the Lord, and they expected him to be faithful to his promises. They trusted God to do what he said. They were acting as if the Lord had already led them into Canaan and given them their own inheritance, because they were sure he would. So what does all this mean for us today? One of the things that we need to understand is that we are pilgrims, just like the people of Israel were. The Lord had delivered them from slavery in Egypt and brought them through the wilderness. He had promised them their own inheritance in the land of Canaan. Yet the only way that they could inherit was through faith and obedience. They needed to believe God's promises and to trust his faithfulness. They need to keep their eyes focused on the prize, the promised land. In the same way, beloved, God has delivered us from sin and slavery. God loved us so much, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world for our sake. Jesus was willing to suffer, even to die, to pay the price for our sins. 
By dying on the cross, Christ has set us free from the mastery of Satan. He has promised us a glorious inheritance, life with him on new heavens and a new earth, in joy and glory forevermore. But just like the Israelites, we have not yet inherited our promised land. The question for us is this. Do we believe God's promises? Are we willing to trust that he will allow us to share in his glory? Will we keep our eye on the prize? Or will we compromise our inheritance through disobedience? It's striking that for Israel it was possible to compromise their inheritance by whom they married. The same is true for us today. God gives us lots of choice about who we may marry. There is one simple restriction. We need to ensure that we marry in the Lord. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Paul used an example from farming to show how ridiculous it is to think that believers and unbelievers can be fully united and can pull in the same direction. You cannot pair an ox and a donkey and expect them to plow your field. One is way bigger and stronger than the other. They have different temperaments. It simply won't work. God's command is simple. Believers may not marry unbelievers. And so believers shouldn't begin relationships with unbelievers. They shouldn't date unbelievers. If you cross that line, you are being disobedient. You're not trusting that God knows what's best for you. So why does God put the rule in place that believers should only marry fellow believers? The answer is simple. He doesn't want you to compromise your inheritance. He doesn't want you or your children, if God should grant them, to miss out on everlasting life. And yet, beloved, every year we have members who get into relationships with people who don't share the Christian faith. I understand how it happens. We can feel lonely. We think that others in the church community don't accept us for who we are. We're attracted to someone we met at work or school or in the community. It's easier to hook up for sex with someone who isn't a Christian than someone who is. Beloved, it's wrong. It's selfish. It's putting me and my wants first and rejecting the counsel, the wise counsel of our Almighty God. And ultimately, it's jeopardizing your inheritance. In 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul gives a summary of God's wondrous blessings in leading Israel out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. 
Paul, spend, Paul spends considerable time listing the sins of the first generation. Their idolatry, their partying, their sexual immorality, their grumbling and complaining. He details the punishments that the Israelites suffered for their waywardness. How God brought plagues and death upon them. And then Paul says, Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. The first generation who came out of Egypt were a negative example for us. Despite the mighty signs and wonders God performed, they did not trust in him. They were a stubborn, disobedient, faithless generation. God was angry with them and he condemned them to 40 years of wilderness wandering. God judged them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. All of that as an example for us. So that like the second generation, we would learn to believe God's promises and live out of them. So that we would respond to God's kindness and mercy with faith and obedience. So that like the second generation, we might share in the inheritance that God has promised to all those who love him. It brings us to our second point, and we'll see that the Lord teaches his people how to take possession of their inheritance. Why was it that the daughters of Zlophehad sought to share in the inheritance God promised to his people? And why was it that the leaders of the tribe of Manasseh sought clarification about property laws in Israel? It was because their eyes were focused on inheriting the land. The Lord had condemned their forefathers to a 40-year sojourn in the wilderness until all those of majority age had died in the wilderness. But that 40 years was almost up. The second generation knew that soon the Lord would give the command to go up and enter into Canaan. Uh, they trusted that he would lead them in battle, that he would give them victory over their enemies. They believed God's promise that he would give them Canaan as their own possession. The focus of Numbers 36 is on Israel's inheritance. Their eyes were focused on the prize. They were invested in taking hold of the prize God had promised them. Beloved, that's often where our struggle lies. We don't always live what we say that we believe. There's often a disconnect between what we profess and the choices that we make. We say that we believe in heaven, but we often live as if this life is all there is. We profess the life everlasting, but we get so focused on the opportunities, the needs and desires of this life that we lose sight of what is to come. The fact is that you cannot make sense out of life unless you view it from the perspective of eternity. 
There has to be more to God's plan for this world than sin, sickness, sorrow, and death. There must be more than the temporary pleasures of this physical world. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, beloved, when you forget eternity, you tend to lose sight of what's really important. When you lose sight of what's important, you live for what is temporary. You look for satisfaction where it cannot be found. Paul speaks about this in Philippians 3. He thought that he was making a wise investment of his energies in his early life. He thought that by living a strict life in accordance with the law, he'd be able to merit righteousness before God and so share in his blessings eternally. But that was before he knew Jesus Christ. On the road to Damascus, Paul was converted. He came to a living faith in Jesus Christ. He believed that in and of himself he deserved to come under God's condemnation. That the only way to share an eternal life was through faith in Christ. Paul writes about how the effect of knowing Jesus Christ changes our perspectives on life. Paul says that he counts all things as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord. Paul was willing to give up the prestige of the position he held. He was willing to suffer the loss of all things so that he might share in Christ's resurrection. Do you know what that means? It means that when Paul looked at this life and saw that living for Christ meant persecution and perhaps even death, he was willing to pay the cost. Why? Because he wanted to share in the joy and glory of everlasting life. Paul knows that he's not there yet. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul has his eyes focused on the prize. You know what that prize is? Sharing in life and joy and glory with Jesus Christ, not just in the here and now, but forevermore. Just like the Israelites look forward to inheriting the promised land, so Paul is eager to inherit eternal life. Paul applies this to the believers at Philippi, He applies his message to us as well. He says, Beloved, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. How are we to imitate Paul? What is it about his life that we are to follow? It's the fact that he had his eyes fixed on Jesus Christ that he was determined to share in the blessings 
Christ had promised him. Paul's focus was not on the here and now. It was not on getting maximum pleasure out of this life. He was willing to undergo hardships, even persecution if required to do so, because his eye focused on the prize, everlasting life. Paul goes on to speak about how the knowledge of Christ needs to change our priorities in life. He writes about how many so-called Christians walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He says their end is destruction, their goal is their belly, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Such people don't live out their faith. They value the things of this life more than sharing in the joy and glory of eternal life. Paul writes that their God, their God is their belly. They indulge in the sinful appetites of the flesh. In the early church, there were Christians who had no difficulties attending pagan temples and participating in feasts to various gods. Feasts that included drunkenness and sexual immorality. They professed to know Christ, to believe in his death and resurrection. But they lived sinful lives. You see, beloved, Paul is warning us not to focus our lives on unimportant things. We're all prone to do that. We're all inclined to major in the minors. Paul calls it having our minds set on earthly things. We tend to focus on the here and now, on fulfilling our own desires, on doing what we want to do. When we're young, there may be a temptation to experiment with alcohol or drugs or sex. God created us to enjoy pleasure, and so we fall into a lifestyle that indulges the sinful flesh. Those who are no longer young still need to struggle not to set their hearts on earthly things. There's a big temptation for us to be successful, to try get ahead in life. We can focus our lives on making money, on living well. Aren't we often selfish in the use of our time, our energy, our money? Don't we often indulge ourselves and give God the leftovers. In the busyness of life, our minds are filled with the things of this life. But how about knowing Christ and living for Him? Paul teaches that we only have one life to live, that we need to invest in things that have eternal value. He writes, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. All people, whether they're believers or not, live on this earth. But if we're Christians, this earth is not our homeland. We're sojourners, we're pilgrims. We're passing through on our way home to join Jesus where he is in heaven preparing a place for us. What Paul is saying is that our real identity is defined by a city we've never seen or visited. Who we are and how we live 
is influenced by a city that lies ahead as our joyful inheritance. As pilgrims, this earth is not our homeland. We're looking forward to something far better. We're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Christ has bought us with his precious blood. He's made us his own. And he's promised to take us to himself, to heaven, to share in everlasting joy and glory. And thus Paul exhorts us to stand firm in the Lord. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is a call to endurance, beloved. Time passes, but we're to hold fast our faith in the Lord Jesus. Temptations come, but we are to resist them by the power of the Spirit. We're to stand firm in the Lord. How do you do that? By considering this important question. Are we just citizens of this earth? Are we also citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Do we live just for the here and now? Or do we recognize that we're pilgrims on this earth on our way to our eternal homeland? Where, beloved, does your focus lie? On yourself? On the fulfillment of your earthly desires? Or on Christ and on sharing in his blessings? Do you consider this earth to be home? Or are you eagerly looking forward to your eternal inheritance? We began this sermon by speaking about inheritances. From a worldly perspective, an inheritance is the money and goods that a person passes on to their loved ones when he or she dies. It's about riches that can be enjoyed in this life. Yeah, beloved, this life is so short. Most people don't live much more than 80 or 90 years. What is that in comparison with eternity? Think about the question that Jesus asked his disciples. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world And loses or forfeits himself. Becoming a millionaire or even a billionaire. Simply won't help you. When you die. The Lord has a much better inheritance in store for us. He's promised us life with him. On new heavens and a new earth. He's promised to allow us to share in his blessings. Forevermore. How do we make this inheritance our own? We need to press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. To take hold of Christ and the full salvation there is in Him. How do you do that? By trusting and obeying. By putting Christ and not yourself at the center of your life. If we live for Christ, 
We may be sure that we will share in the glorious future God has promised us. Then we may look forward with eager expectation to the blessings of sharing in our promised inheritance. Amen. In response to the gospel message, let's rise and sing Psalm 16, stanzas 3, 4, and 5.